1: you're listening to tv's top five the hollywood reporters tv podcast i'm leslie goldberg the west coast tv editor and i'm joined as always by the great dan feinberg thr's chief tv critic hi dan how's it going
2: oh just going through uh, barbecue and queso withdrawal after my my weekend last weekend in austin but uh but glad to be back i guess or i have glad to be back safely ensconced in my in my apartment without large numbers of people. As much as I love large numbers of people, because the people who come to ATX TV Festival are generally and truly the best people. But still, you spend two and a half years largely hiding from people, and suddenly lots of people can become a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I would imagine that's overwhelming. That's how I felt when I went to my first Dodger game post pandemic. So, well, not post pandemic because hi, hey, we're still in it, but post lockdown.
2: I I understand. And definitely that is more people, 50,000 people versus a few thousand. But, you know, a few thousand people who are all our friends and many of whom are TV's top five listeners. So hi to all the people who said that they love TV's top five and use us while uh, commuting to and from work or on runs or various different things. We really appreciate it.
1: Very much so. Very much so. Well, it's been a very, very busy week. Well, actually, today has been a very, very busy day. Lots going on, which we will get to in a second. But before we dive in, let's start, as we usually do, with the weekend headlines.
2: Number one.
1: As I predicted two weeks ago in episode 171, Demimond is officially dead at HBO. Sources say it will be shopped to streamers as the original series from J.J. Abrams is seeking a budget north of $200 million, which is more than what HBO uh, paid to make House of the Dragon, the the upcoming Game of Thrones prequel.
2: Well, it will be interesting to see what happens with that. Do do you have a sense that there's actually a marketplace for this? Or if if it scares off the good people at HBO, is it going to scare everybody else off?
1: Well, the good people at HBO are in the process of cutting $3 billion. Well, not really the good people at HBO, but, the, but more like Warner Brothers Discovery CEO David Zaslav is cutting $3 billion from the newly merged company. Well, when you wipe off a quarter billion dollars from one show, that definitely... Get you a little bit closer to the finish line. So um, that said, I don't think that the price tag on this is going to scare off others because no one else in town is really doing that kind of budget cutting at this point, uh, especially when you look at the free spending that's been happening at Apple and Netflix, both of which uh, have other projects in the works from J.J. Abrams. And don't forget, you know, Apple was a player originally a couple of years ago when J.J. was taking ro- – um, meetings for Bad Robot all over town. They offered him what I heard at the time was a $500 million overall deal and the reason he said no is he wanted to be able to first of all he didn't want the deal to be exclusive which would have meant if he had signed with Apple he would have been making movies exclusively for Apple TV exclusively for Apple by re-upping at Warner Media at the time for half the price He was able to keep a film deal, which is affording him the opportunity to do the new Star Trek for Paramount, which is a rival studio to Warner's. And now he can have those movies released theatrically. Apple, not so much. So I wouldn't be too surprised to see this one wind up at Apple. Hey, speaking
2: of Apple, Colin Farrell will star in a genre-bending drama series for Apple called Sugar. Catherine Hahn will play the lead in the cast of Tiny Beautiful Things, a drama based on the book by Wild author Cheryl Strayed, Little Fires Everywhere boss Liz Tiglar, and former TV Stop 5 guest Liz Tiglar. Do you have a number on that? i like to give you a chance to uh, to give numbers when you have numbers handy for Liz Tiglar.
1: We've had a lot of Liz's on the show, but Liz Tiglar previously joined us for episode 62 for Little Fires Everywhere. That was March 20th, 2020, and our very, very first remote podcast recording.
2: Well, we had recorded, we recorded that one in person, but we did it a few weeks earlier and then it became. That's right.
1: You're right. Because I'm looking at at the topics that we had for that episode and it was, we let off with COVID and the great production shutdown and then how COVID affected late night and then how COVID affected streaming. And then we did a Liz Tiglar interview that was recorded the week prior or two weeks prior. Remember when we did interviews two weeks prior? I do. Eh, you know,
2: sometimes you do them, uh, uh, see to your pants. Other times you actually are out ahead of things. Who knows? Maybe someday we'll be out ahead of things again, but probably not this week.
1: Yeah, it anyway, probably has a person anytime <laughs> again Well, soon that's, sadly. That,
2: that's something else. So, anyway, yes, as I was saying, uh, Tiny Beautiful Things, um, which will now star Catherine Hahn, Liz Tiglar will be the showrunner, and Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern will be executive producers.
1: And speaking of Laura Dern, I'm going to talk about some excellent, truly epic casting news. The great Carol Burnett will star opposite Kristen Wiig, Laura Dern, Allison Janney, and Ricky Martin in the Apple comedy series Mrs. America, which counts Laura Dern as among its executive producers. Elsewhere on the casting front, Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Leigh will top line the fifth season of FX anthology Fargo. And in news out of ATX, Dan... James Marsden will return for the upcoming fourth season of HBO's Westworld.
2: I'm glad to see somebody using ATX as an opportunity to break a little bit of news, even though I have absolutely no memory of where things were left off with James Marsden on Westworld, or frankly, where anything was left off on Westworld. But anyway, that's a hell of a cast to start things out for season five of Fargo. I didn't love the fourth season, but I I Mm -hmm. like that as a brand so very much. And when the fourth season was good... I thought it was extremely good. It had little meandering bits, but anyway, Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. That is a good start.
1: Is it weird that the first thing I thought of when I when I heard that is how FX famously passed on Mad Men?
2: It's not weird. I I believe that everyone is fairly well aware of how your brain works, and I would say that probably scans completely with how your <laughs> brain works. Uh, anyway, great cast. So, yay. Speaking of renewals and speaking of FX, What We Do in the Shadows has been picked up for a fifth and sixth seasons ahead of the summer debut of its fourth season. And HBO Max has picked up Tokyo Vice, a drama that only premiered a couple months ago and that I've completely forgotten existed for a second season.
1: Yeah, and wrapping up this week in headlines, HBO Max has canceled Raised by Wolves after two seasons. I think there's a very, very loud fan petition going on for this one. But I think you know, going back to what we opened headlines with with Demi Mond, this is a financial decision. It sounds like this is a big sprawling show. They've invested a lot of money in this one. I'm obviously not going to compare it to Demi Mond in that budget, but it's not a cheap show to make. But you got to remember that this is something that originally was developed to air on TNT before HBO Max was even a thing, let alone had a name. So this has been kicking around the can for for a few years. And. Could not have been cheap for them to to produce, especially considering you had to keep those the options on the cast around for so long.
2: Yep, definitely. I've seen petitions going around for this sucker. And, you know, we have we have a couple colleagues out in the world who are fans of the show. So who knows? We'll see. The uh, the cast is trying to keep people optimistic. And in this television landscape, who can possibly say number two up second? This is major industry news that broke early, early, early on Thursday morning. So we're just kind of picking up the pieces and figuring things out. Fortunately, our podcast happens to feature one of the great people at picking up pieces and figuring things out in Leslie Goldberg. So, Leslie, on Thursday morning, Disney dropped a fairly major executive bombshell. Break it down for the kids.
1: Well, kids... Peter Rice, the former chairman of Disney's general entertainment arm, who came over alongside Dana Walden after the Fox deal a few years ago, was fired this week by Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Sources say it was a very, very brief conversation in which Chapek told Rice that he was no longer a fit for the company, which it's honestly astounding. You know, Peter has... Uh, incredible relationships with talent and executives, agents, everyone in town. He's been in that role for nearly three decades, obviously dating back to his time with Fox pre-merger. But, you know, this is a giant stunner. So what makes it especially shocking is that Bob Chapek, the embattled Disney CEO, just re-upped Peter Rice last summer and Rice had another 2 plus years left remaining on his deal. So what changed from the from the past year? That's something that pretty much every industry reporter is going to be reporting right now. So this is going to be a developing story, but there's lots of rumors flying around right now. I mean, if you cover this industry and your phone isn't blowing up today, then you're you're doing something wrong. So Uh, As for what went down behind the scenes, again, this is a developing story, but one thing that's definitely interesting to look at is the ascension of Peter Rice's top lieutenant, Dana Walden, who also came over from Fox as part of the Disney acquisition a few years ago. She has now been elevated to take over that role, so as I bust out my insane, beautiful-mind-looking organized org chart of Disney's executive structure, it basically means that Dana is now going to have oversight of – pretty much everything at Disney except for ESPN. Of course, this doesn't include the Disney Media Entertainment and Distribution Group that is overseen by Kareem Daniel. He controls all of the purse strings for the company as part of this new structure that was created a couple of years ago, when pretty much every conglomerate restructured for streaming. I feel like that should be a key on our show, Dan, uh, to take a shot. So every time that, that, that I say restructured to better prioritize streaming – Take a shot. So sorry for all those people who listen on the morning commute, but maybe take a shot of coffee. I don't know. It doesn't work the same way. But anyway, so this is definitely a landscape-changing decision. The more interesting part of this, too, is that Chapek, who, of course, has continued to step in it since taking over for Bob Iger, doesn't have a new contract of his own and only has a few months remaining. And Disney's board has backed his decision to let go of Peter Rice. So the bigger question is, How does this affect Bob Chapek? Is he going to re-up? Why did he do this? You know, aside from it, you know, not being a quote unquote, you know, a fit for the, the company's culture anymore. The bigger question that I have is, did Chapek feel so threatened by Peter Rice that he removed him from the equation because he felt like he was a threat? So that that Disney could have ousted Chapek and and had a successor Rice right there, obviously dating back to Iger. Rice, you know, Peter Rice was considered a natural successor. So it was a big surprise when Bob Iger picked Chapek from the Parks division to be his successor as CEO. So lots going on within the walls of Disney. Obviously, it hasn't been a smooth past few months for the company. Obviously, this is all also stemming out of the pandemic and and the windowing and everything else is going on. And again, this is just the latest in the, in the sea change of this industry and how the pandemic has affected everyone on the entertainment side.
2: I, I'm very amused slash entertained by how long Dana Walden and Gary Newman were, of course, joined at the hip on the studio side. And since they Ah, uh, separated as a partnership. I feel like Dana Walden's gotten like fifteen different promotions, and suddenly she keeps going up and up and up and up and up. I kind of uh, uh, wonder, <laughs> a, where the sky's the limit is going to be there, and b, um, what's Gary Newman up to? I yeah, he's, he's got. Fun. I think he's
1: got a consulting gig, or he's he, doing some some private equity stuff. But yeah, it, it, you you do bring up a great point, Dan. That was one of the biggest and best partnerships in in our industry. They, of course, ran. For a brief period of time, they they ran both Fox, the network, and 20th Century Television, the studio. Of course, the broadcast network remained with as part of the Murdoch fold, and the studio and its assets were moved to Disney. And in doing that, Dana made the move over. Gary stayed at Fox and was quickly replaced by Charlie Collier. So a quick little executive carousel refresher there. But yeah, it's very interesting to see. You know, Dana's been... Rice's lieutenant for the past two plus decades so now she gets the keys to the kingdom and reports directly to Chepek. so I think there's a look there's a lot of people in this industry who are really upset about Peter Rice's dismissal um, sources say that this hit the company like a ton of bricks um, not many people knew this went down Monday the news broke early Thursday morning so yeah there's been a lot of, of things going on how? Oh out of curiosity i know how, how, how did this not leak before when when the meeting happened on monday yeah it, it's one of life's great mysteries dan and i'm glad you picked up on that because it's certainly a couple of us talking about that so
2: that that is not the way these things usually work in no. the industry and well great i've said three three cheers for all the people who have done a really good job of keeper of uh, secret keeping for a few days those people should also uh, get jobs with the cia or fbi or something to that effect i i hadn't realized that that's uh, vaguely hilarious yeah. Well, not hilarious. People are losing jobs. Not hilarious, but still yeah. causes me to scratch my head. That it yeah. absolutely
1: does. Yeah, but but Rice, just like Walden, great relationships with talent and executives and agents, you know, and again, you know, she's his protege. So and I'm not knocking Dana's qualifications. She's obviously more than qualified. They were kind of a, a great one 2 punch because Dana reported to Peter when they were when they were both at Fox. So if there's anyone who knows how he thinks, it's Dana. But, you know, the big question is, of course, why? Why would Chapek – did he – was it really that he just felt threatened by Peter Rice? Peter's name was, of course, bandied about for a, a top role at Warner Brothers Discovery, reporting to David zosloff That was a position that he pulled, he pulled his name from the consideration for. So, look, he was – this guy was – you know, look, he re-upped last summer. He was committed to Disney. Obviously pulled his name off of the, the Warner Brothers Discovery piece of this all. So did he – was he trying – was he angling for for Chapek's job? Did Chapek feel threatened Was this a cost-saving move? I mean, these are all big questions that, well, I'm sure, I have no doubt with uh, our great colleagues, including Kim Masters, on the case that these questions will come out in in the coming days or weeks or months.
2: Well, we look forward to further updates from you in the weeks to come. Number three.
1: Up third, Dan, the winners for the 82nd Peabody Awards are in and... There's a couple of TV's top five favorites among them. So, you know, you've got We Are Lady Parts and Reservation Dogs among the winners. But Dan, break it all down for us.
2: The Peabody's are always interesting because they, of course, have there's sort of a presumption of, of social merit or more than simply quality. And so thus, it's always a challenge to uh, figure out what exactly it is that they're evaluating and to think of things like they always have various Strange considerations regarding I don't know what shows they'd given for season one and if they wanted to give shows for you know multiple for seasons across seasons one and five, so then you have all sorts of questions like, well, okay, surely I don't know a season of better things is always worthy of a Peabody. I don't know uh so yeah it it's a pretty decent list uh so on the entertainment side for whatever reason and i don't understand why they did this they made it into a three-day period of of announcements and i don't wholly get that but you know whatever it's (laughs) if people were willing to write about it for multiple days then that's fine but on the entertainment side so you had winners including bo burnham inside dope sick hacks reservation dogs sort of the underground railroad, we are lady parts and the wonder years. So yeah, as you say, uh, we had, um, people from the wonder years, we are lady parts reservation dogs and hacks on the podcast. So that's pretty good. It, you know, it makes me happy when the Peabody organization, the voters, um, some of whom are our friends of ours, uh, when they go a little bit deeper on shows. So, you know, giving exposure to something like Sort of, which is on HBO Max is is good. That's that's kind of what they should be doing. They should be casting lights into certain areas that maybe are not the the brightest or most overexposed. So we are Lady Parts, while it might feel to listeners of this uh podcast as if we are Lady Parts is being relentlessly uh pimped and promoted everywhere, it's mostly just us. That's not true. Oh, yeah. Us and some of our our colleagues as well. But
1: it's easily one of the big sleeper hits of the year. And that's, I think, because it's on a platform that that has yet to really find its big breakout hit.
2: It's true. So, you know, obviously there are always going to be questions about kind of things that are missing. And, and I'm sure everyone has different quibbles. I, I think, for example, as we see it, is a very good and easy example of a show that probably deserves to be recognized based on the criteria that the Peabody Awards tend to have. Uh, I don't necessarily understand why you would honor the Wonder Years there, but not Abbott Elementary. But, you know, that's, that's sort of choices. But I, I think Abbott Elementary certainly would have been worthy of inclusion there. There are all of the different various true crime and scammy type Uh, limited series and stuff that that certainly could have been there. And it's very clear that they decided that those just simply weren't within the Peabody Awards mandate. So something like, I guess the easiest thing would be the dropout because that was the one that was sort of closest to universal acclaim. Such as it goes, uh, but figuring out what the exact timetable is, I, I don't know where uh, something like Pachinko fits in here. Um, I guess it might have been after the deadline because it seemed. Who knows? It's hard. It's hard to tell. Anyway, it is a it is a good group of things. Always with the Peabody Awards, you can look at the sort of primary and big scripted things, and that's that's one easy way to do it. I always like going a little bit deeper because they do such a good job with documentary programming. And they do such a good job of, in that case, those are places where the lights haven't necessarily been cast. And so you want to see recognition for Philly DA on, on PBS, uh, something like High on the Hog on Netflix, one of my favorite culture slash food shows of recent years. That's their exterminate all the brutes, which was in my top 10 for last year and which was just a, a prodigious piece of intellectual documentary cinema from Raoul Peck. So lots and lots of good things recognized by the Peabody Awards. They they have a kind of a higher mandate than necessarily just, is it good? Did it make me laugh? Does it have a movie star? And therefore, am I supposed to be excited because, look, it's Julia Roberts doing television again? Um, yeah, it definitely looks as if it, it's a more of a year-to-year calendar, I guess, thing, which would explain... Then why a couple of the things that are more recent, like As We See It, didn't make it. So hopefully those will be remembered next year. Anyway, lots of good stuff. Always recommend going through the long, long list of Peabody Award winners and just finding good TV to watch because it's what we do.
1: (laughs) Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Number four. Guest this week is Stephen Dunn, the creator and showrunner of Peacock's Queer as Folk Reimagining. Dunn, whose credits include the indie feature Closet Monster, is the driving force behind the third series in the Queer as Folk franchise and landed the rights to the title after meeting with series creator Russell T. Davies and pitching him a new take about an LGBT community rebuilding after a Pulse-like shooting. Thanks so much for joining us, Stephen, and happy Pride.
0: Happy Pride. Thanks for having me.
1: So we just posted uh, what I thought was a great conversation that that you and I had with Russell T. Davies, who obviously exec produces The Peacock Show and created the original, plus the creators of Showtime's Queer as Folk, Ron Cowan and Daniel Lipman. And we talked for about an hour plus about how much has changed in the TV landscape and yet how much things have remained the same, at least in society, how do you see your, your new Queer as Folk fitting in with our current state of our community on a small screen and in, and in society for that much more?
0: Yeah, you know, obviously I, I started developing this show five years ago, um, you know, and uh, really centering the show on a community rebuilding. And I, I feel like, unfortunately, the premise of our show, which obviously takes a lot of uh, inspiration from Paul's nightclub shooting, has become obviously a lot more relevant and, um, as time has gone on, not only in the aspect of, you know, um, conversations around gun violence, but also in queer rights in general, um, trans rights. And, I mean, currently we're seeing articles about banning, dra- like, minors that dra- uh, in the presence of drag queens. You know, it, it's just, it feels like there's a... An urgency right now in bold queer storytelling because um, there's just been an uh, heightened presence of discrimination, um, and I think
2: it's really important to have queer joy on full display right now. I want to ask the why New Orleans is the setting question, but I think my question is is more specific even than that because. Uh, New Orleans is is most frequently depicted in kind of a either eerie Southern Gothic people with voodoo dolls, people walking through graveyard terms, or in the touristy Bourbon Street. Let's all go crazy and get drunk and throw up in the alleys terms. And I think that there's <laughs> some of that in the in the show, but it's clearly not the primary focus that you wanted to have about New Orleans. So why New Orleans, and how did you want to focus on New Orleans?
0: Well, you know, we've seen a lot of queer communities already in like New York and L.A. and San Francisco. And in Reimagining Queer as Folk, it was really important for me, I think, to have the show set in it, Um, a community that really has a diverse intersection of of culture, of queerness, of race, of class, of abilities. Um, And New Orleans is just a city that I am have a strong relationship to. And, um, I, I really love and their community is just so punk, so resilient, so, uh, defiant. Um, and that was the energy I really, really, really wanted to bring out in the show. I wanted to see, um, you know, you know, obviously it's, a it's a, the liberal oasis in the deep South. And there's a lot of, um, queer people that gravitate towards the city, um, because of its accepting, um, nature. And yeah, it's, it is, you're right. It is the side of new Orleans that really doesn't get to be seen very often. Um, but it felt important to, uh, elevate it, uh, on this, in the setting.
1: And new Orleans was also the site of uh, the, before pulse, the biggest mass murder in in a queer community.
0: Yeah. That was a huge decision as well to, to set it there. It had, I mean, it, um, before pulse, there was a, um, a horrible act of violence in a bar um, that left a lot of queer people uh, dead. And, um, yeah, it was... Uh, in 1973
1: that. at the Upstairs Lounge, yes.
0: Exactly, yeah. And it, and it really uh, had a lot to do with why we wanted to set it there, not because we wanted to tell that story, but because of its history and the resilience of the community and how much it's gone through already.
1: The final season of the Showtime series, which, just to set the record, you know, was obviously set in Pittsburgh, um, that show ended in 2005, but its final season featured the bombing of its gay bar, which, like sure. yours, was called Babylon, like the like Russell's original. And yours obviously picks up with the shooting there. Culturally speaking, does the arrival of the Peacock reimagining feel as if it's coming at a similar time in our culture as to when both the British original and the Showtime update arrived?
0: Um, I think that, the, in a way you know, this is, we really have seen ourselves not, you know, there's a lot of questions like, are we a reboot, of reimagining? Like, what does that even mean? But we really, I th- the, the way we kind of feel about ourselves is that we're almost like the child of of both of these versions. And it does in a way, although, you know, we have a new cast and a new storyline, it does sort of feel like we are picking up a little bit where we left off, but in a new generation within a new group of characters that are living defiantly uh, during a time Um, where, you know, there is still a lot of, uh, oppression of our, of our community. Um, and that really is the driving force, I think, of, of the season.
2: Um, you've done, you know, you've, you've obviously talked about this with many people, including Leslie in a a great interview, but I do want to talk a bit about the decision to build the season around the Pulse-like Mass shooting. Mm-hmm. When, when did you decide not only that you needed a tragic incident like that as an instigator to the drama, but also when did you decide how you wanted to approach and depict it? Here,
0: I knew I wanted to. Uh, I knew I wanted to sh- center the show around rebuilding um, early on in the development. I came. I came to Russell. It actually started really. In my original pitch to Rush, Russell, I, I went to Manchester. Once I found that the rights had um, reverted back to him, and uh, I came with a lot of emotion um, because you know I've I've I really felt like our community had been under attack, and I really wanted to tell a, a modern queer story about what it what it is like to live um, as a queer and out, unapologetic queer person in America now, and what the importance of community really is. And, you know, that's something tonally that I think both shows tackled so well in previous iterations. They were, so, there was, there was a presence of, of, of tragedy of, of loss um, that really grounded the the joy and irreverent humor of those older versions. It's, it's just baked into the, the DNA of queers folk. It's joy and trauma coexist. Um, and, um, and, <laughs> I came to Russell with a lot of anger, a lot of frustration for where we were culturally of, of queer storytelling and where it, it was at that time, um, and how I still had not seen my community reflected, um, and um, and how the Pulse nightclub shooting, while being m- m- the most unimaginably horrific event that had a you know happened in Orlando, uh, but had a ripple effect around the world. It it created a, um, a unifying, um, there was just a a unifying energy that started to come out of that event. Not immediately, obviously it, it took some time. Um, but, um, I just felt like at that point, uh, there was a conversation happening of how do we rebuild queer spaces? How do we start to be more inclusive um, than what we, what how, than what our spaces even used to be before? And that was the story I wanted to tell. And that's the premise I, I brought to Russell. Um, and once we sold it and and we got the, you know, the permission to, for Russell to green light it, I, that's when I started working with the Pulse survivors. And I went to Orlando very early on in the process um long before we were greenlit. And I I I I wanted to, I knew that this was really sensitive territory. And I really just wanted to learn from them um, what one, like what this experience was like, um, but more so like how it impacted them in a in a in the long long term. Um, but I also really wanted to learn what was important to, to omit. And what, how, to, how to approach this in a way that was respectful and not, um, um, you know, taking advantage of obviously a very traumatic event. I, and that's why I decided never to show the actual shooting, never to have violence uh, present or visible in the show and not to give any more screen time um, to the presence of the shooter as well. Um, because that was just not the story. That's the story we see in headlines so often. But this is a story really about the community in and of itself, and so that's why I, that's why I centered the story around the rebuilding.
2: But you had to know as you were doing it that, given the given the nature of our society and given the nature of news cycles, that there was every possibility that horrible shit in the real world would then come in and be able to color or detour the show and you alluded to this earlier does the show as it's premiering this week does it feel like a different show than it might have felt two weeks ago
0: honestly it may it, it maybe these 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 uh it's really it's really frustrating honestly to have to have this conversation and say like, Oh, shootings in America are all too common. It's, it's, that's a horrible sentence to have to say. And, um, you know, I I think honestly, like the importance of shows like this and I'm, I'm grateful that we are coming out right now, to be honest, because I do feel like it is important to understand the impact that these events have, on the, on the people who experience them, um, you know, the, the, the new cycle gets to continue. We all get to, we read those headlines, we get to move on with our lives, but the people who experience this kind of violence don't. Um, and that's really what our show is about. It's about that perseverance, that perseverance of joy and how we, how we, how we need humor and, 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 and love and life in order to like, um, move on move on and, and survive in these, these really trying times.
2: One of the particular targets, and this feels like something that I assume came out of your conversation with survivors is, is there's a pretty scathing response to kind of grief vultures to people who latch on to tragedies like this. I'm I'm curious what the stories were that the pulse survivors told you and, and how that sort of raised your hackles on that. But at the same time, how conscious you had to be at every point to make it sure and to make clear that you're not doing the same thing.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the most important things that I got from the show. And I honestly, I felt really, I felt really, um, conflicted about those original interviews, uh, because, um, you know, I, I, it's, I find it, you know, like documentary filmmaking, honestly, is like something I have a hard time with the reality of talking to people about these painful experiences that they go through. And that's why my approach was very passive in terms of making sure that, you know, I was inviting people who wanted to be there and take part in these conversations. Um, And then, you know, those who were interested in continuing the relationship, um, we invited to come on as consultants um, to read scripts. And, you know, those, but those early conversations that we had with, not just survivors, but like community leaders that like came up as a result, as a result of pulse in Orlando. Um, it really had a huge impact on like the tone of the show because it was important these to, to talk about the, the media circus and frenzy that surrounds the conversation of these, these shootings. Like suddenly these, these people are just, you know, they were just folks like you and I who were going out to a club that night and suddenly they, they, became famous for being at a gay bar or not necessarily. I mean, fame kind of came about as a part of those experiences. And that's, what, is, what the hell does that say to our the media in general that, we're, that these acts, um, these horrible acts, you know, bring this kind of attention? So, yeah, we did include that as a major story point Is like, people who... who Um, who take advantage of the popularity of these heinous crimes and use it to be self-serving, I do think that that is something that we also had to think about as we were telling these stories. And how do we go about this um, and represent these stories with dignity while knowing we are actually making a a TV show about it? It's a complicated thing, but ultimately to us it's, it's... incredibly important to tell these stories and to reflect this experience and to show the perseverance of queer joy um throughout um 20 you know this this new generation
2: sort of changing gears a little bit maybe towards perhaps a little bit more levity but You know, who knows Uh, (laughs) uh, with with new cable networks and streamers, I I always like watching the early content to try to get a sense of what you can or can't say on Apple TV Plus or HBO Max, what you can or can't show Uh, based on these episodes. It's pretty clear that Peacock is giving you guys a lot of room to work with. But are yeah. there still? I mean, you things also
1: make fun of the the peacock name before the, yeah, you see I the mean, first image God. of the show, underlining the cock and peacock.
2: <laughs> I, mean,
0: I mean, bless them. Honestly, <laughs> uh, yeah, they they really uh, they really didn't push back on on much. I mean, we definitely had conversations ahead of time. You know, we have a um, we have uh, we have a lot of sexuality. We have or like sex parties and uh, a crip rave. Um, we have full frontal nudity and et cetera. There was definitely a lot of conversations going into it because it was really important for us. um, You know, knowing that we were going to shoot these scenes, I didn't want to get into a position where we were asking our actors to, um, you know, um, be nude or have these sex scenes and have them have the network or whatever uh, in the editing room, like push back and suddenly like this gorgeous scene that our actors are, are putting up their hearts and souls into is then like ends up on the cutting room floor. Like we wanted to clear, we want, we were very specific about what it was that we were going to be shooting. And we wanted to get the clearance ahead of time to know that there was not going to be a pushback afterwards. And so that's how we really approached it in order to protect our actors. Um, and also the integrity of the show and, Thankfully, they let us go all in. You know, they they knew the show that that we were making, and
2: honey, they they let it be exactly what it needed to be, and I'm so grateful for that. In the early conversations, was there pushback against anything? Is are there some things you can't say or show on Peacock, or really is it kind of wild? No, actually, there was there
0: was there was a lot there was a big conversation around opening the show with full front, like literally. Second shot of the show is like full frontal nudity. That was a conversation that definitely uh, went uh, pretty high, um, but ultimately it ended up in the show. So you tell me. I mean, they're they're really that was really you know the only major conversation that we that we really discussed about you know how we want to present the show and you know they they I'm blown away. They're really. They let us do what we wanted to do. I, I can't believe yeah. it.
1: <laughs> I mean, with, with you, they've obviously seen the predecessors. I mean, the hope is that they've seen the pre, you know your predecessors. Yeah. But you can't, as you know, Russell said in our conversation ahead of the originals launch. Everyone thought that this was going to be some soft, kissy kissy show, and by design. It, and those are Russell's words, not mine. Yeah, no, I know. You know, and it. this is. <laughs> And it, and it turned out to be the opposite, and the same was true for for what Ron and Dan experienced when they were making Queer as Folk, because that and U.S. audiences weren't didn't expect it to be as raunchy, for lack of a better word, as yeah. the British original was, and it was, and it, and it ran yeah. for even longer.
0: Yeah, I you know, know and crazy.
1: yeah, and I mean, you know, just to kind of you know to, to piggyback, you know, here the you know the biggest difference here with your show versus your predecessors is the diversity. Obviously, you know there are so many trans characters, non-binary characters, disabled characters, and all of those storylines take the front seat in Queerest Folk for the very first time. In is that in itself a victory for you?
0: I would say it is a. It makes me so happy that we were able to like tell this story with this community because honestly, it's a reflection of my my community this isn't um, you know I'm this isn't a bingo you know bingo card of queerness sort of aspirational thing here it's actually like this is what my community looks like and it's the main reason I, I made this show is like you know I, I my uncle um, um, he has CP and he came out um, a couple of years ago and um, I told him I was re- reimagining queer as folk and he said, Oh my oh my God, I used to watch that show in my basement with the volume turned down on mute, just like I did when I was a kid. And I, I I took I came away from that conversation with him with him just being so so moved and that's you know that's when I was like, okay, Marvin's already in the show, but I'm I'm writing Julian. Um, and that's when, uh, the character introduced, got introduced. Cause I was like, and that was after I had even written the pilot. Um, but I was like, I am there's, there's so many people that are a part of our community that still don't have stories about them. And, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful that we're able to have the platform of, of an iconic, incredible show, like where's folk, um, to be able to, to highlight, more members of our community, and to expand and really lean into the word, uh, you know, the keyword of the title, queer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I do want to talk a little bit about the way that that you address Jesse James Cattell's storyline. You know, she obviously plays a character named Ruthie in this. She also has a sex scene that includes full frontal, and did a flashback episode that was incredibly moving and some not something like any and something that I really hadn't seen on on television before. In mm-hmm. that she played her character Mm pre-transition what were the conversations like that you had with Jesse about filming those scenes and how did having an entirely queer writer's room help play a role in them
0: absolutely and also a lot of Ruthie's storyline really comes directly from uh, Jacqueline Moore our produce executive producer who you know put a was put a lot of her own personal experiences into this character and was heavily involved in sculpting um of, of of Ruthie and you know, it was really honestly those two points that you just brought out were um, were moments that were really important to Jesse um, as an actor to be a part of the telling of Ruthie's story of the um, you know the empowerment of owning her body in those you know being fully nude in those that sex scene. Um, and, um, and then being able to play, uh, Ruthie pre-transition was Jesse literally sent in a self tape, like after we had been like shooting, uh, the show, <laughs> um, we, she sent us a self tape of herself, um, playing bleep, the character, which is what the character's name is. Um, cause we bleep out the title, then the, the dead name. Um, and, um, she just really wanted to be, it, it led with her because she wanted to be a part of the telling of Ruthie's origin story. And ultimately, I mean, it was the, the right decision because it's such an incredible performance. She's so it's raw and honest and vulnerable. Um, and, but it was also, you know, definitely a very challenging experience for her. So we, we, we took the time to like, make sure we were doing it right. We did a lot of like tests um, makeup tests and stuff like that multiple times before shooting so that, um, Jessie could start to feel comfortable, uh, in it and make sure we were doing it right. Um, and, um, and, um, you know, I'm so proud of her. She's so, she's so fierce and brave and like one of the most powerful people I've ever met. I'm, I'm so grateful. And she's you
1: know, a good
0: friend too. Yeah. You
1: know, in addition to, to that You know, obviously that whole episode and everything with that character feels so groundbreaking, which obviously lives up to the legacy of what Queer as Folk as a franchise is. You know, the other thing that I thought was compelling is the way that your show handles the portrayal of HIV, which is also kind of relatively new uh, compared with especially compared with your two predecessors. So for for those, you know, obviously the show is out now, but I do want to get into a little bit of a spoiler here. But
0: yeah, you can we can spoil it all you want now. The girls have seen it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, what's interesting to me is, you know, you have a a very young character on the show who tests positive for HIV. And there's a really moving scene where he has to tell his mom, played by uh, the great Juliette Lewis, who is so Mm -hmm. fabulous, along with Kim Cattrall as as, uh, queer uh, parents of queer children. Mm -hmm. But what happens in the scene is the mom, Juliette Lewis's character, Basically says, "Oh, honey, you're going to be fine." Like she kind of like looks at it like, "Don't worry about it."
0: Yeah, she laughs with yeah.
1: Which is, I mean, we've seen so many of the opposite reaction on television. Can you talk a little bit about why it was important for her to respond in this kind of the surprising way that she did?
0: Well, in all honesty, that scene came to me after a meeting with Juliette Lewis. I. Uh, had my original zoom with her just to like get to know each other before she had fully signed on. And she just had such a deep knowledge of queerness and the realities. I I knew that the Mingus storyline was, um, had um, an HIV um, component to it. So we talked a lot about it and she just had such an understanding of like what it meant to live um, as being undetectable and and, and untransmissible. And I, I just woke up at like 3 a.m. in the middle of the night and wrote down the scene where after a long pause, Mingus like comes out as being HIV positive to, to her. And she just has an even longer pause and starts laughing with relief and emotion and says, Mingus, I thought you were going to tell me you were dying. And it just has baffled me that we have had so m- you know, all of these HIV storylines that we we've seen are all period pieces as though like that, the you know, the existence of it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't exist anymore. But the reality is like it still exists. It just it means something different now. And I, I really wanted to help change the narrative of of people living with HIV, because I think there's still a lot of misconceptions of of um, of it and, and how like people can you know, live full, you know, happy, problematic, loving, funny, like open lives. Now, and 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 it's has nothing to do with their HIV status. Um and I think Juliet just does such an incredible job responding to it because she's so un- she is really the symbol of unconditional love in, in the show. And honestly I feel like the relationship between those two characters is the heartbeat of queer as folk. Um and Juliet just brought such a beautiful warmth to it and I'm so grateful for her honestly she's a mad genius
1: looking ahead have you already pitched a second season and if so what are some of the topics that you'd like to explore you know should I'm hopefully not really fingers crossed the show that.
0: um but I, we are definitely like talking about what season 2 looks like um but um you know I'm still waiting for those conversations to be had but I'm very excited
1: about it you know, but but in success, knock on wood, you know, have you already thought about some of the topics that you weren't able to include in season one that you would like to to get to in season two?
0: Definitely. And not just topics, but characters like I am just so excited to write more for Bussy and Marvin um, and Ali. Like these are characters who are very are integral to Queer as Folk um, into the season. Um, and, uh, I really like, I just, I think they're, they're just such incredible actors and, um, it's, I'm really excited, especially to start writing for the cast now that we know who they are, because we've really learned like their strengths and, um, the things that they can do. I mean, it is like, they are all stars, all of them. So, um, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of new territory that, you know, um, I think I think I still I I want to I, I again I, there's a lot that I want to pull from in terms of like what's going on in the world right now but as as you know you can see in in this show like I don't ever want queer Folk to be like an issue piece or a PSA um, I do want it to be a reflection of modern queerness but without sort of the responsibility of you know, perfectly representing a, a movement, if you know what I mean. Um, so I think we'll, we're going to continue to remain current, but in, a, in our
2: own way, if that makes sense. One of the interesting things about remaining current when these representational conversations are evolving at such a, a rapid pace is that even a show that's only a few years old can feel like it's from a different era because conversationally, to some degree, it is. If you had to guess in five or ten years, what parts of the show that you're making now do you think might feel like a relic? What would you love if they seemed, if they actually th- really were relics ten years from now? If they were
0: relics, yeah, it's a great question. Oh, I, the obvious one is gun violence. No question. I mean, we were we were literally waiting <laughs> for anyone to do anything around, uh, the accessibility of assault rifles. And my, my main hope is that we never have to hear that storyline ever again.
1: Yeah. Well said. Uh, and we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying?
0: I have been watching (laughs) <laughs> um, I mean, to get me through COVID, I've been watching Drag Race All-Stars. Um, uh, I've been here in my hotel room, missing out on the premiere of uh, our New York premiere of the show. Um, and that's been giving me a lot of joy. Um, I've, I, I've been watching um, Everything Everywhere all at once. Um, I absolutely love The Northmen. I saw it like, I'm a Newfoundlander, so that the Icelandic landscape gave me like so much joy also I'm obsessed with Bjork so seeing her in that like incredible blind witch outfit like I just that's what I want to be for Halloween this year um I watched the Northman three times um I loved men I've been, I guess I've been watching a lot of A24 stuff um, um I've been trying to see as when I was shooting I didn't really see anything because I was just in a a queer as K hole. Uh, but now I'm really starting to get back out into the theater. And,
2: um, oh, God, it's so refreshing. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us
1: on the podcast this week. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. The entire eight-episode first season of Queer as Folk is now streaming on Peacock, and you can go back and watch Russell's original series on Amazon. And Showtime, of course, has its American version. Plus, the Premium Cable Network will re-air select episodes this month to celebrate Pride. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches, you've got Marvel's latest, Miss Marvel, which arrives on Disney+. The new season of For All Mankind lands on Apple. Paramount Plus returns to the world of evil. FX launches The Old Man. And you just heard our interview with Stephen Dunn, the creator of Peacock's Queer as Folk. Dan, what you got?
2: Lots and lots of content. Let's start with the thing that is already available on TV sets near you. That would, of course, be Disney Plus's Miss Marvel, uh, which... I've only seen one episode. I believe critics who reviewed it reviewed it off of two. I, I haven't had the chance to get to both episodes because our wonderful Angie Hahn reviewed it. Um and I it's just very, very likable is the is the thing. And that isn't always the case with these various Disney Plus shows. And I think that Uh, A lot of the credit goes to the directors of the pilot. That would be Adil and Bilal. That is their joint collaborating name. They are a pair of Belgian-Moroccan directors whose credits also include Bad Boys for Life, which somehow I, I did not see. But maybe I'm actually now slightly more curious about it, because I thought that the way that this handled what is a very very slow burn piece of storytelling so uh, the first episode is barely even a superhero origin story it is much more a coming of age story it is much more never have i ever than it is i don't know hawkeye or something to that effect it is it is very coming of agey and to me it was both charming and really really innovatively shot visually. I thought that the combination of animation, of sort of use of the way it handled kind of text conversations and populating the visual universe with emojis and with uh, visualization of text conversations, I thought it did all of that very well. I thought that it did a great job of giving it the look of a comic book and a superhero story, even if it's only in the last five minutes that anything super actually occurs. So I, I feel like there's a lot happening at all times, even if for the first 40 minutes, it's largely, okay, girl is is having trouble with her overly strict parents and her religious upbringing, which are different and cause her to feel left out in a secular world, which is, of course, a totally universal story, regardless of whether the specifics apply to you. And so I think it, it hits those beats really well. Just the, the visual style, makes it feel like a superhero story even when nothing super is happening and i i appreciated that there's a lot of feeling to this i felt like it was from the into the spider-verse sense of visual storytelling uh mitchell's versus the machines uh, like a lot of that kind of visual storytelling and i i appreciated that because again a lot of these marvel shows have been somewhere between. Either we don't have the money to do anything big or we're just kind of keeping it intimate as a matter of course. So I thought that this was very likable, very charming, not instantly gripped by it. But I don't think it's supposed to make you instantly gripped. You're supposed to just want to see what's happening next week. So as of now, I don't know what the overarching storyline of it is. I don't you know, there isn't a clear villain. There aren't any clear stakes. The clear stakes are being a teenager is tough. Etc., which is also, you know, the stakes of Spider-Man and countless other Marvel and DC properties. So I, I liked the first episode of this a lot. I hope that it will not be greeted by (laughs) mean-spirited responses. If you don't like it, that's fine. It maybe just isn't for you. Onward. No need to complain, etc. I don't need to complain. I like it. So, uh, that's Miss Marvel. It's already out on Disney Plus, the first episode. Uh, The two big releases, at least for me this week, are two shows that were in my top 10 for last year. That would be Paramount Plus's Evil and For All Mankind on uh, a little service called Apple TV Plus, which we talk about a lot because apparently they're spending a lot of money and bringing Colin Farrell into the fold. Sure, why not? Anyway, so uh, if you happen to be... In Austin for ATX Fest last week, you already saw the premiere of Evil and perhaps you saw the fun panel that I did with Katja Herbers, Mike Coulter, who's a very, very tall man, uh, and Asif Manvi, uh, who are all very, very funny. And then the new season, I've seen the first four episodes of the new season and it, it picks up where last season left off. And last season, the finale, of course, ended with a, an illicit kiss and not really a thing that I, Necessarily, really wanted the show to do. I think it takes some of the dynamics that are most provocative about the show and renders it kind of interchangeably will they, won't they television crap. And I'm sure some viewers are utterly invested in whether or not, uh, Kristen and David will make out and other various things. Happens not to be my interest in the show. Uh, but anyway, it is addressed and I thought addressed reasonably well and the first few episodes are very very on-brand evil so you know there's an episode about uh about memes and people being terrified by memes and who's operating memes and what evil things are related to memes which is one of uh the kings the creators of the show one of their all-time favorite things is to sort of look at internet culture and social media culture and find horror in it as if there isn't horror in it inherently so yeah the the first couple episodes are full of things that are a little bit gross and a little bit disturbing i'm not sure that the first four episodes have hit kind of that that really terrifying visceral core that sometimes the show is capable of doing whether it was the all silent episode last season or i think the episode that got a lot of people into the first season was one of the episodes with the demonic kid which the show does extraordinarily well with i think that a lot of interesting stuff is happening this season with Kristen's daughters who remain my favorite part of the show because i am a sucker for their uh inter interlocking and intersecting and overlapping dialogue and i think that there's some really really funny stuff with that in the first episode uh again playing with social media and networked gaming and whatnot So, yeah, I really like Evil. It's possible that it's one of those shows where when I put it in a top 10 list, I maybe raise expectations and blow things out of proportion. I I don't necessarily know that I do that, but could be. It's a really, really satisfying show. The transition over to Paramount Plus. This is the first season that was actually produced for Paramount Plus. The second season was made for CBS and then transplanted from CBS to Paramount Plus. There aren't any huge differences. And I think I probably appreciate that. So there's a little bit more swearing. It is very, very casual and it's swearing now. Last season there was swearing, but it all kind of felt like it was being done by ADR. And now it feels like it's comfortably worked into the, uh, <laughs> into the dialogue, but it's not as if suddenly episodes have become 54 minutes or 58 minutes, and God bless the kings for that. Episodes tend to be upper 40s, and and that's that. And so, yeah, the show, the first episode has a little tribute at the end to the late Peter Scolari, which I found emotional. And, yeah, it's, the check it out. If you haven't for some reason watched Evil, it remains a really good example of horror TV that is actually, when it's in gear, genuinely horrifying. And it's also very, very funny. And if the good fight is coming to the end of its run, I hope that evil sticks around for a few years. I feel like it has a lot more stories still to tell. Uh, For All Mankind, the second season was even higher than evil in my top 10. And the third season, which as people who Pay attention to trailers and whatnot, no, relates to a manned mission to Mars in the alt mid 90s. Um, I've watched the first three episodes. I've, because there simply wasn't time for me to get to this for review, there was also not time for me to get through the full season. And I definitely will, because I think it's a really, really good show. The first three episodes, I would say probably a little bit less engaging than maybe last season was this is a show that does a tremendous job with building season long story arcs and so that has been the case since the first season where some people complained about slightly slow beginnings and then it closed like a like a freight train at the end of the first season and then the second season similarly some people felt it started a little bit slow and then the last couple episodes were as gripping as any movie thriller And I don't know that the third season actually starts slow. There is some very, very big stuff that happens in the in the premiere. So it's not like it's really entirely a slow burn. One of the things that struck me watching this season is that this is not really a show that was ever designed to have the same cast every season, because the show has now taken place across three decades. And to me, in a perfect world, the show probably should have jettisoned 80% of its cast each season. It should have said, okay, here are two or three people we're carrying over as they move into new roles at NASA and new roles in the space program. But then here's a whole new group of people with the right stuff who are, whose stories we want to follow. And instead, I think the writers got a little enamored with the tremendous cast that they established and, refused to knock a lot of them out of the main storylines and had to start reaching to keep them involved and somewhat worse had to start dealing with putting a lot of them into really really not great old age makeup and i kind of wish there was a little bit less of that the first episode in particular i found the old age makeup really distracting uh it, particularly when it comes to uh, Chantal Van Santen and to Joel Kinnaman. It's, I, I don't know what to say about it. And then either the makeup is, <laughs> I don't know, it's diminished, reduced, whatever, in subsequent episodes, or lit better or something. I don't know what it is. It became less distracting. Part of that is also simply getting accustomed to such things. But I kind of wonder if it's cheapening the realism of the entire endeavor to keep being like oh okay here's the way that we're going to figure out to get our now upper 50s lower 60s astronauts to still be actively involved in going into space would that really be a realistic thing i am not convinced it would be uh anyway so that would be my major complaint of the new season my secondary complaint is there was a story and um, our buddy alan seppenwell mentioned this in his review and since he wrote a full review and i didn't You can go check that out. There's a storyline in the second season, which I thought was easily the worst storyline of the second season and uh, probably knocked the season down several places in my top 10. And smart money would have found a way to avoid that storyline in season three. And instead, it's even more present in the third season. And that began to really get on my nerves after two or three episodes of this season. Like, why are you keeping being invested in a storyline that really just isn't good. And I don't know that anyone actually gave you the impression that it was. So why can we not move on? No answer to that. Stepping back, though, big picture, For All Mankind (laughs) remains a very, very, very smart piece of speculative fiction. It, It is full of brainy, big ideas about the things and people that change the world and the little ripples that can sometimes cause unintended consequences and things to change all around it. The opening montage uh, that establishes what has happened since the last season and kind of establishes how we end up with the president of the United States that we have uh various other random things that all of the historical ripples of the show have done for some reason they changed a very 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 significant piece of nba draft mythology i don't understand how the russians getting to the moon first did that but it is still a thing that is part of the show and vaguely amusing so um anyway it is still a smart show it's a big show it is a show with a huge Uh, budget and whatnot and and does great work with it and so yay for for all mankind
1: and you can go back and listen to our interview with ron moore about season two of for all mankind back in episode 108 from february 2021 and he also talked about leaving the show as showrunner because he obviously has a new deal with disney
2: yeah that was a really good conversation, and I would have guessed it was i would have guessed it was significantly further back than than that i 'm actually kind of surprised to find out it was that recent uh, I, I might have guessed it was like three years ago, so who knows time weird moves weird anyway finally uh, premiering on the sixteenth on fX is the old man which is fx 's adaptation of thomas perry 's novel. Uh It stars Jeff Bridges as a former CIA operative who is now living a quiet life as a widower in Vermont until government assassins come to clean up some messy business from his past. And he goes on the run and he has a particular set of skills. So don't get in his way. Um It is great to see. Jeff Bridges, both in general on television on a weekly basis, but in specific to see Jeff Bridges in this show that got a lot of its publicity because it had to be delayed while he got cancer treatment, while he got covid treatment, et cetera, et cetera. It's good to actually see the show itself. Now, the creators of the show, that would be Jonathan Steinberg and Robert Levine have made some very, very big changes to the book, which is perfectly fine to me because I thought the book was kind of a, a shell. It was an outline of things, and this is much more filled in. So specifically, the main character's backstory now has specific ties to Afghanistan and to American intervention and aid to the Mujahideen and other things like that, which at least gives it some text and some meaning. Um, And then the character played by John Lithgow here, who is the FBI agent pursuing Jeff Bridges' character, basically a non-factor entirely in the book. Here, he's sort of a one-to-one adversary, and you hear Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow, and you go, yay, I want to watch those two titans going head-to-head. First four episodes, unfortunately— they don't really do very much of that. Their only interactions really are in the premiere. They're exclusively via phone. And so you're probably going to wish that there was more of that. Probably you're going to wish there was less of the character played by Amy Brenneman, who's a woman who comes in contact with Jeff Bridges character, and they become awkward allies of sorts. It's a badly written character in the book. They've made Effort to give her more of a backstory and more motivation here it only works a little um and so yeah i I wish i wish there were i don't know the the sort of the sense of how to build this out as a tv series at some times is very very good and at other times they kind of had an idea and they only had an idea to go so far and it doesn't come all the way together. Uh, John Watts, who directed the past couple Spider-Man movies, directed the first two episodes here. There's some good action, some action that smartly accentuates the fact that the main character is in his seventies. And so he has, he has his set of skills, but maybe he hasn't used them on people in a few years. And so I liked the way that it, it used those things. So really Watching the show for Jeff Bridges, for John Lithgow, for Aaliyah Shockat, who, who plays a character who reports to Lithgow's character and is sort of his, his mentee, his protege. Uh, I think she's very good. Some of the supporting performances are very good. The stuff with the backstory in Afghanistan is basically, it's basically homeland light and still doesn't come together. But really you're watching this for Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow and it, it succeeds. So to sort of go through those things again, uh, Miss Marvel, I enjoyed it. It's already on Disney Plus. You can check it out. Uh, For All Mankind on Apple, if you haven't started it, it's a really great show. I have reservations about third season, still well worth watching. Evil continues to chug along in spooky and funny fashion on Paramount Plus. And next week, The Old Man premieres on FX, and I particularly like the actors.
1: For more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV hyphen reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporters TV podcast
2: be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms if you like us rate us if you really like us write a little reviewy thing helps spread the word of mouth come say hi to us on twitter we're always happy to hear what works what doesn't work basically feedback if you have specific questions for upcoming mailbag segments this week thanks to the big peter rice news we didn't need a mailbag segment but hey next week we might you can email us at TV's Top 5 at thrcom that's TV's Top 5 the numeral five at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan.